Welcome to Alchemy Radio, where the only thing we ask of you is that you keep an open mind. Today's guest is James Robert Wright, who resides in Dallas, Texas, and has held many positions and decorations in his Masonic Lodges and Scottish Rite, in keeping with preferred family tradition. His ancestral roots can be traced back to the Wiseman clan of Scotland and later Britain, of which many of the males were Templars at the time of the Crusades. James has a background in entertainment production, emergency dispatch, IT support, and then preceding all that, the obvious formal employ as an envoy to the Supreme Council under the establishment of Freemasonry. Five years into being an actual Mason, up to one year with carte blanche access to vaults and archives as special assistant to the Secretary General, he unexpectedly uncovered some of the most shocking revelations about this so-called International Charitable Fraternal Service Organisation. Currently, he spends a great deal of his time researching, locating and unifying ritually or emotionally abused and exiled Masonic brethren in his ongoing struggle with the hierarchy of the Masonic Order for what he calls the sanctity of the place, their ultimate hoodwink and the imposters investors that turned it to a death cult. His documented falling out with the various Supreme Council officials occurred upon the moment of his refusal to submit to further bizarre ritual abuses and the refusal to right all the wrongs that were currently going on at the time and to take proper measures against any further incidents, abuses contrary to every supposed teaching of that order. Now James currently finds himself on the front lines of the private, now turning public battle to bring certain leaders and their treatment of brother knights to an end. After all, he says, whether fortunate or unfortunate for me, this is my life and was my path, what I was pushed in the direction of doing. And as odd and Dan Brownish as it may seem, it became my world and the truth is stranger than fiction. So, James, you're very welcome to Alchemy Radio. Thank you for joining me. How are you? I'm excellent, John. Thank you. Well, I How think I'm really good, and I'm excited. I think we've a very interesting show ahead of us. We haven't tackled the issue of Freemasonry on an individual show on alchemy yet, and we're about to do that in depth, I believe. But before we delve into it, James, tell us a little bit about your background and how you got from, I suppose, where you were to where you are now. Well, um, it has to do with my family mainly. I come from a family in Dallas that has, uh, to say it has a rich Masonic heritage would be an understatement. I mean, it goes back centuries in our ancestry, the Masonry, and then predating that, the Templarism, and predating that, the Priory, you know, and all that. So, um, basically, when I was 24, it was, you know, put to me that it would be advantageous for me to, uh, you know, go join a Blue Lodge and, you know, enter through that doorway, so to speak, and so... A little bit, I, you know, I dragged my feet, but uh, the pressure was put on, and I eventually did it. And at first, um, on the Blue Lodge level, I mean, things were pretty much fine. I mean, it was a good way to do charity work and meet, you know, guys my age who, uh, as they say in masonry, that you would have never met or otherwise remained at a perpetual distance. Mm -hmm. And that's very true. And I made some good friends and, you know, so on. Um but because of the family component, uh, they are very, very interested, even though they adamantly deny this, in bloodlines and that whole subject matter. And so they will single 
candidates out once you've gone through and you're uh, all the way to a 32nd degree mason and then they have their eye on you through a little by invitation only order called the Holy Grail Council interestingly enough mm -hmm. and then you know you're pretty much handpicked to be the protege of someone on the Supreme Council which is exactly where I ended up and that's exactly where it occurred to me just how evil and twisted and uh, hypocritical, just any, any descriptive word along those lines you can think of, it, it's it, what people say is largely true. And so I departed and I wrote a book about it and it's nonfiction all with supporting evidence of the things that go on at 3 a.m. and that most Masons have no clue about and uh, it's made my life quite difficult just to bring this information out so that's that's sort of the nutshell version <laughs> and we're going to go into how it has made your life difficult and what exactly is contained in the book a little bit later on but before we do that for anybody who mightn't be familiar with what freemasonry is can you give us a kind of a, a concise history of freemasonry and how it came about and what goes on within the i suppose you could call them the occult or the hidden halls because it is a member only group Yes, and I mean, the, the difficult part with explaining it to people is that there's so many different versions out there that, by their own admittance, are lies. And so the official version you get on the History Channel and Discovery Channel that everyone is familiar with, I'm sure, is, oh, you know, it originated in 1717 Devil's Tavern, London, as a gathering of stonemasons to form a guild and blah, blah, blah. But uh, the further you advance in the order the more they tell you oh with like each passing degree that you go through you know oh well what we told you to bef before was a lie it actually goes a little bit further back a little bit further back and then finally by the time you're 32nd they end up saying well it actually is the remnants of the last one world religion before the last cataclysm and that's what that high level scottish rite study sort of begins to get into if you are really dedicated to it. And the, when you say right and you say degrees, it's obviously a system of advancement so you can work your way up through the various degrees up until you get to 32nd, am I correct? Yes, in America they've really commercialized the Scottish Rite degrees 4 through 32, but um, you, you know the material is still there and then if, if someone is what I would call a serious adept, in it, then once you're 32nd, you know, you do the Scottish Rite Research Society and the Master Craftsman programs, and that's going to be when you're kind of, uh, so to speak, well on your way to getting uh, first your Knights Commandery Court of Honor degree, which we used to call 32.5, and then your 33rd. But the 33rd doesn't really get awarded a lot unless you donate a lot of money. So... I believe there are different orders, if that's the right word to use. So you've got Scottish Rite or you've York Rite and you've different ones depending on where you go around the world. Are all these different strands of Freemasonry connected or are they separate entities or bodies? A little bit of both. They are connected in the sense that it's all under the um, umbrella of the order. And they do communicate freely back and forth and hold joint uh, sessions, convocations, etc., and so there is that togetherness of it. However, uh, there is a great divide between the York and Scottish Rites. And the York Rite is actually the owners of the Blue Lodge. Interestingly, here about a month ago, uh, 
the head of the Knights Templar in London issued an edict saying that they are revoking all of the Templar material from the York Rite of Freemasonry in the United States of America, which is unprecedented. Nothing like this has ever happened before in the history of the order. It's uh, uh, you know, X, you know, refers to it as the secret secret war inside of Freemasonry, and he's absolutely correct. He he himself is a York Rite Templar, and um, there's a lot of very quiet wars going on right now for who's going to rule the roost on into the 21st century. And uh, right now it seems like the Scottish Rite is up several points because they've really engaged in a lot of maniacal uh, bankrupting and takeovers of York Rite entities as well as the Mystic Shrine and a lot of the other appendant bodies that don't even really exist anymore. I mean, if you pull out the old uh, historical books that you can actually find in Barnes & Noble or somewhere about uh, Freemasonry and its different orders, usually like a, a Jewel P. Lightfoot monitor of the Lodge or something like that. Um, there's all these appendant bodies that, there. I mean, probably somewhere around 50, and they're just non-existent now because the Scottish Rite has totally taken over everything. And it's really the York Rite and these grand lodges of each state and country answering to the Scottish Rite now. And, of course, none of them will admit this because Masonically it's illegal, according to their own laws and edicts. Mm -hmm. But, oh, yeah, the Scottish Rite is calling the shots all the way down to the neighborhood Blue Lodge level. Okay, and let's talk about the neighborhood level for a second because something that I've noticed in my own community, for example, here, and we've only got a population of about 17,000 and there is a Masonic Lodge. And I've noticed um, quite, quite frequently and quite recently they seem to have open days and family days and this kind of thing. And there seems to be a bit of a push or a drive to open up Freemasonry to the public or to give it a public face, which previously I hadn't noticed. Why would this be, James? Or what's the story there? Or is, and is this something that is maybe mirrored all over the world? It is mirrored. You're, you're correct in that uh, guess. And... Uh, when I worked for the Supreme Council, Mother Council of the World in Washington, D.C., uh, one of my jobs was to run their statistics. And when I was working there, when things were still so-called going well, mm -hmm. uh, their numbers were plummeting so badly because of all the bigotry and just two-facedness and, and scheming and the evil and everything that goes on and these younger Gen X, Gen Y, millennial generation people like myself are very, very disenfranchised by that sort of behavior. We don't see the point in it. We don't see why others would do things to others to harm them. We, we just don't agree with it. And so guys are coming in, and a lot of them don't even make it for, past the first degree and before they're fed up and walk out. And so they had all these breakout strategy sessions, as they call them, on that Supreme Council, which issues down all these new laws and edicts to everyone on the planet in the order. Mm -hmm. And it was decided with great reluctance I might add that uh, they needed to take the next step into the you know information age and create social media, create websites, and actually come out of the closet, so to, you know, so to speak, uh, a little bit more than they had been in the past. Which, like with my grandfather's generation, you wouldn't have even discussed 
Freemasonry in the privacy of your home with your Freemason son. Okay. That's how secretive they once were, you know, not too long ago. And now they've had to change their policy on that just to desperately try to attract new membership because without that, they'd already almost be filing for bankruptcy. I mean, they've attracted a few new recruits, but not many. And again, like I said, so many have gotten fed up and walked away that it's just, I mean, it's a... It's a failing order, and the reason they're failing is because they're totally unwilling to change. They're drunk on power. They're unwilling to relinquish it, and they're all going to wake up one day and figure out it, it just doesn't exist, and it was all a facade to begin with. Okay, and we're going to uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about the higher echelons, I suppose, of Freemasonry. But before we do that, as well, as soon as we are speaking on a kind of a ground level. What's in it for somebody who decides they want to be a Mason? Is it, for example, a dinner club, a drinking men's club, or what goes on at that local level for people? Well, Frederick sums it up really well. His work and mine are very parallel in nature, and uh, he talks about what he calls the five types of Masons, and I, I can't name all five at the moment. You'll have to forgive me, but you have, for example, like the political Mason who wants to, you know, he he's eyeing that chair on the Supreme Council or the Grand Lodge of the state he lives in mm. one day, one day, you know, biding his time very patiently, climbing that ladder, and then you have the types that are there for the business networking and thinking, you know, it'll be a gateway to a much more lucrative career, as sometimes it is, I suppose. Um, you have the types that are there strictly for the charity work. Uh, you have the guys that are there strictly to get out of the house and have camaraderie with other men, you know, maybe they miss their fraternity days, what have you. Uh, and those are the main reasons. Okay, and you mentioned your family reasons for joining, so let's talk about your personal experience and how you worked your way up. I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I should add, there is one more type, and okay. uh, it's becoming more and more prevalent each day, it seems. There's the type of guy that joins because he thinks it's going to be a gateway into the so-called Illuminati. And he's power-hungry. He wants to basically pillage and you know, stomp all over anyone he can to get to the top. That's, that's another type. Okay, so, so we've quite a, a number of different types there. And you've mentioned, James, about how you had family reasons for joining. So let's track back in time to when you first became a Freemason. I suppose we'll, we'll trace your own personal history as you worked your way up the ladder. So I suppose from the first time you walked through the door, what was the experience like for you or what happened? Because I'm very, very curious. Oh, they practically roll out the red carpet, and not just for me, for anyone. I mean, I was taken to very lovely uh, black-tie dinners, uh, very, very posh, uh, chic breakfasts, you know, at some of the finest places in Dallas. Uh, I had, uh, they always send a committee of three Masons that are senior officers at the lodge you're, you're joining out to your house to you know, see you in your home environment, see how you live, you go through a background check, you know, and they just wine you and dine you. And they're, it, it, basically any question you ask has a very wonderful, peachy, fantastic answer, you know, to it. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the goal is, and I have their PR and recruitment manual, they, they say they don't recruit, that's a lie, they do. I have the manual right here sitting five feet away from me. 
and you're basically just supposed to agree with anything that gets brought up and say that it's a good thing and Freemasonry accepts it. It's so liberal and progressive. They support human rights and further all kinds of fabulous causes and, and all that, and it's, it's a lie. Okay, and there's heavy use of the symbolism, of course. Everybody is familiar, whether they realize it or not, with the big symbols of Freemasonry, such as the compass and the G and that kind of thing, the, the square. So talk us through those and what the symbolism actually means, what it represents, and how that relates then to the order as you, a Freemason, would work your way up through the ranks. Ah, well, see, that's the tricky part because, uh, as they say in Freemasonry, uh, you know, all the symbols and everything are multiple layered meanings. And so, just the square and compass and the G, for example, uh, you know, the, how does it go? Um, well, okay, the G, let's start with the G. The G, they say it stands for God, it also stands for geometry, it also stands for great architect of the universe. Um, the square is to square your act, square your, Wait, square my actions by the square of virtue. Basically, they say that the teaching, it will, the detailed teaching is that, you know, the great architect of the universe used the compass to circumscribe his, you know, grand design and, and all that. And so, you know, it's just, it, on the Blue Lodge level, they try to really put an emphasis on uh, sort of a Christian take, but then you get to the Scottish Rite, and all of a sudden you're having all of this. Egyptian, Sumerian, Babylonian, Anunnaki material just flung at you, you know, like sensory overload. So mm. there is definitely a divide in the teachings. And how many people, I suppose, would get beyond the Blue Lodge level and work their way up? Is it a case of the desire or is it far more than that? Is it to do with, as you mentioned earlier, bloodlines or political connections or family or that kind of thing? Yes, all of the above, and it also has to do with whether you live in or near a major city. Any major city has a Scottish Rite cathedral in it, and so if you're from a small town, chances are, I mean, far away from urban areas, then chances are you'll probably just get to be a Master Mason, and you'll never really visit a York Rite commandery or uh council or a Scottish Rite cathedral or whatever, but when you live in an inner near an urban area, the night you are made a master mason, you have five guys on average come at you all at once, pretty much backing you into a corner and pressuring you to go join the Scottish Rite the next month. Okay, so basically once you have become a master mason, you have options and you can kind of go in a different direction, am I correct? Yes. However, if you say, no, I think I'd much rather do York Rite or I'd much rather do Shrine, they get an attitude and, again, the pressure is really, really put strongly on you. No, you need to go do Scottish Rite. So, and, and, and what are the big differences, James? Well, uh, the York Rite is only a total of, what was it, nine degrees and uh, the Scottish Rite is 29 and even though you could say from a ritual point of view that a lot of it is uh, similar, they still have this age-old war thing going on, and the Scottish Rite wants it all for themselves. The, the Scottish Rite's ultimate goal is to be able to change the constitutions of Freemasonry to where they are suddenly allowed to give all degree, confer all degrees, 1 through 33, and that these Grand Lodges and the York Rite just go away and, and cease to exist. 
I see. And you mentioned the word ritual there because that's a big part of Freemasonry from what I understand. There are rituals performed at every level up along the way. So what kind of rituals are they and what do they represent or what are they all about? Because I know a lot of people will be completely in the dark and it's probably by design and they're wondering what a clandestine organization or an order could possibly get up to behind closed doors. Well, when you get down to the nuts and bolts of it, it's really an act of domination and submission and the beginnings of mind control. Because when, I mean, the whole point really is to go in blindfolded, you know, half naked and put your trust in these men to take you by the arm and lead you around a dark room and take you up to an altar. You don't know what you're, you know, you don't know what's going on. I mean, you have a, a kind of a clue, but you know you don't know if you're going to trip and fall, or I mean, just silly things like that. And so that's that's part of it is is to gain the trust and obedience of the candidate, and then you're administered these murderous oaths, which I published and made them very angry in my book. And uh, you know, like in the entered apprentice degree, you swear to have your uh, throat cut from ear to ear, your tongue torn out by its roots, and your uh, body buried. In the rough sands of the sea, a cable toes length from shore where the tide ebbs and flows twice in 24 hours. Should I knowingly or wittingly violate or transgress the inner apprentice mason's obligation, so help me God and keep me steadfast? And, uh, you know, it just gets worse from there with each oath. And in the master's degree, that's the big climactic one, I would say, mm-hmm. where you take the role as Hiram Abiff and you're ritualistically... Uh, you know, metaphorically killed, and your body is dragged around and roughed up and thrown in the rubble of King Solomon's temple, and uh, you know, eventually you're found, and then they resurrect you with what they call the lion's paw, the uh, handshake of a master mason, and you know, that, then that's that, and then you go on and you do Scottish Rite, and Scottish Rite is a bit different because they have a same cast of characters for every degree who are basically playing the roles of actors and you sit you know in a big operatic op- auditorium and you know watch these sort of one act plays put on and then you stand up in mass as the 32nd degree class and recite each oath from a powerpoint slide and you know they've really commercialized it and there's a lot of staunch ritualists who say you know that they've totally perverted all of the good material of the craft, which I do say to this day that there is good material as far as the moral lessons they harp on and on about to make it sound like there's nothing else going on late at night, but uh, Freemasonry, it really needs transparency or it needs to be shut down because it's corrupted itself so badly by these men drunk on power that I don't believe it can be fixed from the inside. It's going to have to be fixed from the outside. And it's very sad what's happened with it. I mean, it was part of our American Revolution, and it shaped so many of those documents and and movements and civil rights things of the past here. Mm-hmm. And it's done so many good things. And to come into it when I did at my age and to see all of this evil that's taken over, it's just very, very sad, you know? Yeah, and you're you're still a young man. You're only in your early 30s. And, 
you've long experience now in Freemasonry. So when, presumably in the beginning, it was interesting and perhaps even fun, but where did it all start to go wrong for you? Or when did you decide that this wasn't really your thing? About five or six months into my uh, position at the Supreme Council as Special Assistant to the Secretary General. That's when I started to really see what was going on. That's when I learned that uh, what we thought, what everybody thought, was a stage prop for use in the 31st degree Inspector Inquisitor um, is actually a real dead body that they keep in the building somewhere. I, You know, and it was just things like that and visit masons who would come in because the Dallas Valley is the largest uh, valley in the planet. It's uh, the largest physically. It's the largest member base. It's the hub of commerce of all Freemasonry. Uh And all these men would pass through who are Masons and just the bigotry I would see on an increasing basis. And then, you know, there was no problem with, uh, nobody seemed to have a problem with me, but then, the more people I met and got to know, even though to this day they they have not attacked the quality of my work, everyone will, there will swear up and down I did a you know incredible job. But uh, there's a lot of jealousy, and I think a lot of people coveted my position, and I also think that I wasn't willing to play the sexual perversion tactic games you know, being propositioned for sex almost every day in my office. And um, I think it all just culminated in them saying, you know what, he's not what we thought he was. So you decided to write the book, which is Freemasonry's Cult Abuses, Human and Gay Rights Controversy. I can't imagine that was received very well within the ranks. No, it sent shockwaves through. (laughs) Nothing like this has ever happened in the history of the place. Yeah. So what happened? Well, I wasn't even considering writing a book. And after I left, they started following me. They started uh, sending private investigators to take my photograph every time I walked out of my door. You know, being trailed around town in cars. Uh, There was an occasion where I was accosted and kidnapped at a nightclub and held hostage for over an hour around the city streets of Dallas in a speeding car. I mean, it's just... it. It's out of this world what they do when they are drunk on this power of theirs. And, um, you know, I noticed a pattern of just going to back down my driveway and the phone would ring and the chairman of the board himself would ask me, where are you going? And, you know, the first thing I did was get rid of that phone. Then they would start hacking my computer. I had friends over one night and we were sitting in my office and looking at uh, the computer screen was on and I told him, I said, look. Look at what it's doing, and remote desktop was activating, and my documents folder was opening, and the mouse was rifling through it. And so, I mean, this is all very real stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's right now. I've I've had to go into hiding. I'm you know using a Mac, so they can't really breed. I, I haven't had an information leak out of that. Um, I, I've had to take all these precautions. It, it's writing that book. Uh, was a decision I made about four and a half, five months after I left there because they were getting so out of control that I took stock of the situation and I decided, you know what, I'm blowing the whistle. Enough is enough. 
So tell us a little bit about the book then, James, because there are some fascinating insights contained therein. What were the big ones for you or what was the information that you really felt you had to get out there? Well, I've got another one coming on the way, but uh, with this one, what I basically wanted to do was lay sort of the foundation, the ground, the, the, the A to Z of it for uh, people who don't understand masonry and not only that, but for masons who don't understand what really goes on in the higher levels. Yeah. So I wanted to basically, you know, accomplish both with one book. So I tried to write it as clear and concise and easy to understand as possible. And, you know, I themed the chapters, the, yeah, the chapters to the degrees and basically gave a rundown of, you know, how, from the time you walk in the door to the time you're a 32nd and beyond. So. So many people would point to the guys and girls, of course, at the upper end of the political spectrum and people, you mentioned Illuminati earlier and New World Order, things like this. And we always hear stories that George Bush or Barack Obama or whoever it might be, whether it's the political sphere of influence, whether it's religion, whether it's entertainment, whatever it might be, Hollywood, all the top guys seem to be, or at least have the finger pointed at them, that they are high-ranking members of Masonic Lodges. Is this true? And if so, why is this? I mean, we, we know it's a fraternity and there is a camaraderie that exists between members. Does that extend beyond, say, for example, the rule of law as we would know it? Common law, is, is there a different kind of a, a set of rules or a constitution when it comes to Freemasonry? Or why do... Why oh, do good, so goodness, top- yes. Yeah, they, uh, part of the Master Mason's oath, just on that Blue Lodge level is to protect your brother uh, even if he commits murder or treason. They word it that it's at your option, but it's basically the the tone is, you know, you're going to do it. And then the oath of a 32nd degree, you totally swear off the form of government of your own country and and accept what they call the Scottish Rite form of government. For example, say I happen to be in court and I'm up in front of a judge or magistrate or whatever it might be, And I'm up there on a fairly serious charge, and I happen to know that that judge is a Freemason, and I happen to be as well. Is that in any way advantageous to me personally, or what what way does it work? Because um, it's information that so many of us listening will be very new to and very curious about. Not only would it be advantageous, it uh, all you would have to do is make a casual yawning sort of motion to not be too obvious and throw your hands straight up in the air, bring them down about halfway at right angles at your elbows, and then kind of shake them in your lap. And that would be the distress sign kind of semi-camouflaged. Okay, so there, it's, it's almost like a code. Yes, Absolutely. And we hear so many horror stories, of course, as well, because, um, I mean, you, you've, you've claimed, obviously, that you're followed and you're now in hiding as a result. What is it, do you think, that the Freemasons who are so upset at your exposure of what went on with you are actually looking to gain from you? Is it pure intimidation or is it something far more sinister than that? And do you think that, it's, that your case is isolated or that... Obviously, it's isolated in that you've written the book, but do you think that many people who have left for various reasons could be suffering the same kind of harassment? Yes, I have a friend in Kentucky who uh, they found out that he married a no, another man, which mm-hmm. there's nothing wrong with, Yep, and they made his life a living hell. 
they had the um, thing the the sheriff in the town he lived in uh, just basically sit parked out in front of his house, arresting him and his husband every day for anything. I just things that aren't even legal to be arrested for, mm -hmm. and they were sitting in jail all the time. And this went on for the better part of a year. I mean, as many things that have happened to me, I've actually gotten off pretty easy. But as far as I go, in my case, they've already told me how they're going to do. I've I've had so many death threats that it's gone from a local police matter to all the way to an FBI and Homeland Security and all this NSA and everything. All these agencies are involved now. But um, I've had dead animals nailed to my door. I've had threats come in from the phone, uh, email, every form of uh, that we communicate. I've gotten threats through, and they're credible threats. They're very brazen. They don't make any attempt to conceal their identity. They've spelled it out very plainly that they plan on uh, killing me in a car accident. Wow. Well, I mean, they're obviously threats that can't be taken lightly. So what steps have you had to take when you say you're gone into hiding? What have you had to do or what life changes have you made, James? I've moved five times in the last year and a half. I, uh, and when I say move, I mean cross country and back. And I've circled the entire state of Texas, which, as you know, is quite large. Uh, it's, it's just past a point of ridiculous. And I've had to go even further than that to have my mail you know, and my registered address be at one place, which is actually somewhere in Dallas, where I am not. And um, I'll put it this way, I'm about an hour from the Mexican border. Okay. And I'm I've been living out of a suitcase ever since the book hit store shelves. If you don't mind, James, we're going to backtrack a little bit into some of the uh, some of the symbolism because there's something that fascinates me when it comes to Freemasonry. Um, I'm somebody who looks at symbolism a lot, and particularly in contemporary culture, and so much of it can be traced back eons, literally to Egyptian times and beyond in some cases. And something that strikes me about a lot of the Freemasonic imagery is that it seems to be linked to Egypt and ancient Egypt and gods, archaeology, hieroglyphics, that kind of thing. Um, for example, yes. the Great Pyramid. Um, we, we, we can see the Great Seal of the US, the all-seeing eye, all that kind of thing. What can you tell us about that? What does that symbolism mean? Because a lot of people look at, for example, the all-seeing eye and they, they, they assume, be it wrongly or rightly, that this is an evil symbol in itself. Now, personally, I take a slightly different viewpoint. I think that symbols can have power, but that power is only what we prescribed to them. Where do you stand on that issue and where does Freemasonry stand when it comes to that kind of symbology? Well, most of those symbols were uh, designed by Adam Weishaupt and his buddies at the famous 1776 Bavarian Illuminati. Mm. Uh, the all-seeing eye goes all the way back to Egypt. It's supposed to be the all-seeing eye of, I think, Osiris. Okay, and to what end then? Why these symbols? Because I can't help thinking that they're not random. Well, there, you know, there's an old superstition in the high ranks of Freemasonry that so many of these symbols were originally designed by Saint Germain. Now, whether that's true or not remains to be seen. I've never seen any empirical evidence to suggest that's true. So, you know, I, I, I like to stick to the facts. That's why I'm a nonfiction 
author. I, I write what I can prove and I talk about what I can prove and I've got every bit of evidence to back up all the things I've said about them. Yeah, and I find it very, very interesting then, of course, when you see this same symbology used time and time again in popular culture, in, for example, music videos or Hollywood or that kind of thing. Is this... Oh my gosh, have you, have, you should see the, the newest video, that, that one for Kesha, uh, Die Young. Die Young, I've seen it many times. It's, it's staggering. It's probably the most blatant use of symbology that's in no way connected it's, it's, pra it's practically a Masonic initiation. So tell us, why would they do that kind of thing? Say, for example, you're the music director. Does the command come from on high, so to speak? Or would it be that the guys who are doing these videos are conscripted because they are high-level Masons? What knowledge do they have? And why are they interested in getting this symbology out to the public and seemingly to the public as young as possible? I believe that to be from the meetings I took part in, uh, the, basically like a last-ditch effort to try and inculcate at a young age. I mean, what better? What, that's how it's Disney's been doing it forever. Yeah. So why not get this imagery into children's heads as early as possible, so that you know when they're in their mid twenties or whatever, and and questioning, what should I do next? Oh, what, what what this symbol looks familiar. What's this over here? You know, and that's one reason. And then the other reason is because, honestly, in this day and age, it seems like it sells records. Well, it really does. And one thing I've noticed, particularly over the last five years or so, and obviously from being in the music industry myself, it's something I would be very aware of. The symbology has become so... I mean, literally entrenched any big artist or group who make it or sign the big deal with one of the major labels, almost overnight, the image changes, quite often the style of music changes, certainly the symbology used, um, be it through logos or music videos or anything like that changes, and it's become a homogenized, I don't know, almost generic thing for every single artist out there. So if you switch on MTV or Viva or whatever music channel it might be, you're going to see all these different artists. Now, they're all signed to the same labels, but you will literally look at the same music video with slight changes over and over and over again. And it is the symbology that we've discussed, and it is that imagery. And it seems to be, I suppose, nothing is taboo anymore when it comes to music. For example, you look at the lyrics or the content of the videos of somebody like Rihanna, and the type of stuff that she's singing about or the imagery on screen would have been so shocking to people only a number of years ago, five, six, seven, eight years ago. But now it's completely okay or it appears to be okay. And you've, you've young kids watching this all the time. It can't be a positive thing. Now, I don't know if that's linked to Freemasonry per se, and perhaps you can fill me in on this, but there is certainly something untoward going on in the music industry, as I would see it. The same with Hollywood. Well, definitely, and I mean, it, that's the biggest secret is Illuminati, the word, is really just a 21st century pop culture catch-all phrase. It, you want to know who that group is, it's the Supreme Council of the Scottish Rite in Washington, D.C., sitting directly across the street from the White House in the giant pentagram. It's hiding all in plain sight, and this is what I try to stress so much in my message quit hunting phantom cartoonish groups that don't no group meets and says hello we're the illuminati meeting at the illuminati building at 
101 Illuminati way. It's No, that's absurd. It's the Scottish Rite Supreme Council. I am pleading with people. It is the Scottish Rite Supreme Council. If Anonymous or Occupy are listening, Scottish Rite Supreme Council. So that's you, you, you want to kill the snake, you got to cut off the head. That's your head. And you mentioned the proximity there to the White House, and everybody sees, of course, the White House as the uh, the pinnacle of power. And <laughs> I was going to say all that is good and righteous in the Western world, but that's not my own personal opinion, so we won't even go there. But that proximity, I would assume, is not coincidence. So tell us about the links between the two, uh, why they're so close, and how far back those links go. Because you mentioned going right back to the foundation of the U.S., um, that, that, that there's an intrinsic link between the political classes, the political structure of the U.S. and Freemasonry. What can you tell us about that, James? I would compare it to the House of Windsor because there you have, which I have no regard for, by the way, um, basically a, a public relations initiative to surround themselves with athletes and movie stars, singers, all, all, all of these stars so that they themselves look like stars and that's exactly what uh, the Scottish Rite tries to do. They try to get as many recruits from the entertainment industry and from the political sphere so that they just look so cool and so powerful and you know join us because or hang around with us because you know you'll go places and again it's it's just all smoke and mirrors. Um, it, I mean, it is true that they do have those people in their ranks, but it's for all the wrong reasons. And perhaps some of those star types are fully aware and going along with it for everything they can milk from it. Mm-hmm. And perhaps they have no clue just how much they're being used. So, I, I you know, I'm sure it's different with every person, but uh, that's uh, the House of Windsor wrote the book on that. And that's in the Scottish Rite adopted the policy, and um, it's it's all very nefarious. And then let's look at links to religion, and most specifically, but not exclusive to the Vatican, because time and time again, I hear stories and I read articles, and people speak about how Freemasonry has a grip or a hold over the Vatican. And not just, when I say the Vatican, not just a bunch of priests going around in robes, but the whole structure, the the control system that is Crown Corps and Vatican. And of course, that's linked then to to the Windsors and the British royal family. All right, John, you're getting my my gears turning now. All right, so um, the crossover that you have between the two, which see, when they say... When the Vatican says, we don't support Freemasonry, we don't believe in it, blah, 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 mm. that's a lie. When uh, uh, the Freemasons say that you know they have no links to religion, uh, we don't talk about religion in our uh, meetings, and blah, 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 that's a lie. The, the, the crossover is the degree called Knight of Malta. That's where the two come together. Okay, so tell us a little bit about that. Oh, shoot, where's that? book of mine. I, I could quote you the best passage, but it's packed like everything else I own. Um, it's just, there's so many of the Scottish Rite degrees start with the word knight, and that's one of them, and that's the the Christian religious one for the Scottish Rite. And, uh, as you know, there is the Knights of Malta in Vatican City, and uh, 
over there, their job, the Swiss Guard protects Vatican City, and the Knights of Malta protect the island of Malta. Yeah. And everybody wonders where all these treasures are. Uh, that's a good place to start looking. When you talk about the Vatican and these separate orders, what exactly are they protecting? When you say treasures, are you talking about physical treasures, or could we talk, be talking about something more esoteric? Um, I have been having dealings with the Priory of Sion lately, and I can speculate very strongly at this point that we're looking at an object, probably something like, I would say, the Ark of the Covenant, but not what you might think. And the Holy Grail is a moot point. I mean, there's just no point in talking about it because it's not a, a cup or a chalice or whatever. It, it's mm. it, it goes back to this bloodline stuff. Of you know the, the French word sans gras, sans grial, So um, you know that's that's sort of where that goes. And as you asked about you know the religious nature of it, the big split occurred when um, the donation of Constantine occurred. And that is kind of when I would say the Priory initially formed out of, I guess you can say, sheer disgust that Rome was being perverted. And, of course, that gave way to the Council of Nicaea, who removed all of the lost Gospels. And, uh, you know, that's that's when this age-old struggle and battle started between all these different factions. And so, like me personally, I grew up Catholic, but I consider myself Templar because I'm Gnostic. I'm a Gnostic Catholic, yeah. pre-Constantine Catholic. So, um, uh, I'm no fan of Constantine, uh, you know, and, and on this rock I shall establish my community, that, all, that story basically he was giving away stolen lands and so the priory of sion through the pinstroke of william st clair birthed into existence the knights templar and then the templars when they were purged on october 13th 1307 and fled to scotland to seek amnesty from robert the bruce and train his peasant armies to win the battle of bannockburn uh they kind of that's when the scottish right sort of came into play and that term came about and all that Templar material was safeguarded and because everybody wondered where their entire fleets disappeared. Right. Uh, more, more Templars escaped the purge than got killed. Which flies in the face of, I suppose, the official story in inverted commas. Yes, and the only wealth that was ever seized was the wealth that they had in France. Everything, everything else they'd already explored. America. We have a Templar castle in uh, some. I forget where in New England, but uh, it it's been carbon dated to like I think the year twelve hundred or something. So I mean, America had already been explored by Templars, and that whole idea already existed to found this country. So essentially, when it comes to religion and any of these orders. We are looking at Scottish Rite Masonry, I suppose, on a higher plane than even Vatican or the Pope or any of the, the rest of the, I suppose, the symbolic nonsense that we see when it comes to so much of organized religion. Well, when Pope Leo V purged the Templars in 1307, even though it looked like it was for 
you know, oh, they've committed blasphemy. Oh, it was that was all a, another smokescreen because what he was really doing it for was the t the Templars had accumulated more wealth than the King of France and the Vatican combined, and they got to get Philip the Fair, and they got together and they decided this is a huge problem. They can overthrow us. They could buy us and sell us. What do we do? So they trumped up all these fictitious charges. And, you know, every Templar in France was arrested, and that's where you get the origin of Friday the 13th. Tell us a little bit more about that. Oh, that's really all there is to tell. I mean, that's where the legend originates from, because it was forever, you know, in medieval times, Europe called an unlucky day, because the Templars were the rock stars of the time. I mean, most prominent families, that, that was a status symbol, was to have a son that was a Templar. So... Oh. They they truly were rock stars. They invented the credit banking system. That's how they accumulated so much wealth so quick. Mm -hmm. um, they really had it going on. And the Vatican saw a problem with a major problem with that, as did Philip the Fair, because he owed them quite a considerable amount of money that they had been loaning him over a period of time. And uh, you know, after that, they basically didn't have to pay back their debts. Then in terms of the writing of religious books such as the Bible or scriptures or the Koran, whatever it might be, how influential then do you think Freemasonry has been? Has it been the case that they have been the guys who've done it? Because we, we all know God didn't write the Bible. But it's, it has yeah, it's, been people. It's been very influential in, even in Islam because um, a little known fact, the Templars have... the. Only, are the only Christian order that's ever actually captured Jerusalem and the Dome of the Rock and all that. And, you know, they dug beneath it and so on and so forth and found r religious relics and, and so on. But um, the word hashish mm -hmm. uh, comes from the Persians and Islamists that they trained back in the day. Uh, you know, with their, their own assassination, Western assassination tactics. And they called them the hashish because they would give them hashish. That's what Templars would do before they went into battle because it gave the feeling of invincibility. One thing I'd like to touch on, James, is the idea of Freemasonry being a way of life and the idea that it's, I suppose, a good place for people to be and it's a charitable institution and a charitable order and it does a lot of good for local communities and beyond is that the case at a lower level? Because you speak about the higher level and how it's the exact opposite. But at the ground level, Blue Lodge level, is that something, is, is it a perpetuated lie or is it actually the case? So I guess what I'm asking you is, are there thousands or possibly tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of Masons out there who live good lives and who enjoy Masonry at that level and whose intentions are good and who probably do good deeds in the name of Freemasonry? There are currently 5 million Freemason, Freemasons in the uh, continental United States. I would say that 4,999,500 are good men. So, let's talk about the bad eggs. <laughs> the other 500? Exactly. Let's talk about them. <laughs> Where are they? Who are they? What positions are they in, I suppose, to the layman, even beyond Freemasonry? Are there any recognizable names that can be named? Or where can we go with this? Tell us all. Well, the man with the top job, as I call it, is Ronald Seal. He's what they call the Sovereign Grand Commander in Washington, D.C. 
He, he's the top boss of it all. He runs the Supreme Council. Then there are his subordinates, such as Esperant Morris, Arturo de Hoyos, uh, who are the ones who are always on the History Channel, mm. you know, talking about how wonderful it is. And then there's a whole... The Supreme Council is 33 men, so those are the guys who are running that show out there and have direct influence over everything under the sphere of Freemasonry. Um, beneath them, you have what you call the Honorary Supreme Council, which is anyone who's been awarded the 33rd degree. They have voting rights. But, well, actually, no, I, pardon me. They only have voting rights once they're a 33rd and get awarded the Grand Cross of Honor. Because, uh, see, there's there, there's never an end. There's always some other jewel or cap or something to dangle in front of you, even if you're a 33rd, because they want your money. It's a pyramid scheme. Mm. And uh, beneath them, you have the executive board's in all of the major cities where there are Scottish Rite cathedrals. And those are also referred to as honorary Supreme Council members because they make the decisions for the subordinate valleys. Every, every major city has what they call a valley. And then the state is referred to as an orient. And these people and this structure is, in essence, the shadow council that works behind the scenes to run the global empire. I suppose we could call it. Would that be, would that be accurate? 100% correct. Okay, so when we look at Barack Obama or George Bush or Angela Merkel or whoever it might be who's in a position of perceived power, the guys pulling the strings in the background are the ones with the real power and these are who we're talking about right now, yeah? Yes. Uh, if you want me to cover the Bushes real quick, I'll give you my personal take on that. Go for it. George Herbert Walker Bush is a mason. Uh, his son was obviously a bonesman like him, but I think George W. Bush is one of the types of personalities that doesn't really like answering to other people because mm -hmm. let's remember he's a spoiled rich kid from Connecticut, not Texas. I, I, Texans get very upset with the way that he sort of cartoonishly mocks our culture when the truth is he's from Connecticut. So, um... Barack Obama is Prince Hall. And see, Prince Hall is, I, I swear to you, John, it's the last organization on this earth, Freemasonry, I mean, that gets away with being openly racist and, and practicing segregation. Now, they will admit black gentlemen into white lodges nowadays. They had to. But they still keep Prince Hall around. And actually, if you want to know the truth, the Prince Hall Masons are very, very dedicated, very, they give a whole lot more to charity than any White Lodge I've ever seen, because they really believe in what they do, and they don't take it any higher than that. They don't go on to do Scottish Rite, they don't, because they don't allow them to. They tell them that they're clandestine Masons, because they're Prince Hall, even though they do the same ritual, even though they do all the same work. They say, oh, no, you're clandestine. You can't sit with us in our lodge. It is vehement racism. How would somebody like Barack Obama then advance from Prince Hall to the position that he's in? 
albeit a position of perceived well, or puppet power. Oh, well, to use Obama as an example, I would say that's an exception to the rule because he is the president of the United States. And so naturally any Masonic official is going to, you know, suck up to him. <laughs> yeah, <okay. laughs> to put it nicely. So uh, back to the Bushes, what kind of, what kind of power, particularly uh, George Herbert Walker, what kind of power would he have or how high ranking would a guy who has elevated himself or has been elevated to the positions that he's held and continue to hold over time, albeit no longer president of the USA, how big is he in this whole game and what kind of influence does he have and how far down then does that extend? Well, he himself doesn't have a whole lot anymore because it's my understanding, at least here in the news, is that his health is failing. Uh, but um, back in the day, when like when he gave his famous New World Order speech, yeah. um, I would say that he was probably one of the scariest men alive. So he's not necessarily somebody who is just there for show, which sometimes I feel his son may have been. He, he's somebody who actually was able to exert some kind of real influence or power. John, it would not surprise me one bit, knowing American politics as I do, if we end up having Jeb Bush as a president in the future. I, 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 they rigged the elections, you know, all the stuff. It's not conspiracy theory, it's, conspiracy, it's fact that's been proven. You know, it's, it's just ridiculous. We, we pretty much have a monarchy here in America. And that's very interesting because it's a little-known fact that the everybody assumes that the U.S. is truly sovereign and truly free. And to be honest, what a joke because the links, and again, provable links, it's far from conspiracy theory. The links go right back to the British monarchy and they still exist. And in essence... Oh, they're all related. Uh, one of my very good friends and an author, her name is Tracy Twyman. I just recently uh, did a show with her on the Middle Chamber uh, she has done extensive research. She went and got the, uh, the the name slips my mind, but it's the tip top number one world's foremost genealogical DNA uh, research facility over in London, and they have totally proven beyond any shadow of a doubt that all of the U.S. presidents have been related to each other and to the British royal family. Which doesn't surprise me in the least, because again, we're going back to bloodlines, which you've mentioned several times. And oh, and you can always predict our elections because of it. That's very interesting. We'll, we'll come to you when it comes to the next election, <laughs> election to, see, uh, to see if we can put our money on somebody. But I've heard so many rumblings and the positioning that's going on within the annals of power in the US seem to be pointing towards Hillary Clinton for a run at the White House. What would you make of that, or what would you make of somebody like that being in that position? Well, I was a teenager in the 90s during the Clinton years, and, you know, they were good years. Um, there were obviously the scandals that we had with him and, and all that, but, I mean, he's certainly the best president I've seen in my lifetime. Uh, but I do think, and I think a lot of people at the time thought that Hillary was really the, the brains behind the operation, mm. you know. I mean, she's she's a very serious, hardcore, uh, globalist, you know, politician. And uh, would she run for president? I I don't know. I feel like uh, I feel like she feels like she's all already been president. So <laughs> you, know, you know, why would she run? And uh, they they threw that Sarah Palin up with John McCain, which was a complete joke. 
uh, if they would have put her with them and if he were a Democrat, they would have won. So, um, but, you know, in America, we, we talk about it. It's the frequent subject of radio discussions and so on, you know, this false left-right paradigm. Because the truth is, is whether you get a Republican or Democrat in office, there's a higher power that's really calling the shots as to, you know, what domestic and foreign policy is. When it comes to your own personal experience, um, as a gay man, James, how, how did you find that? Because you've alluded to the fact that uh, people may not have been, or your, your Freemasonic colleagues may not have been totally open to that, or may have abused the fact, or attempted to abuse the fact that you were a gay man and openly gay within their ranks. What was that experience like for you? Well, they thought that just because I'm gay that I was some sort of prostitute and that my presence in the building meant that anyone who wanted to come in and proposition me had every right to was the attitude. And I'm talking about married men, which I find revolting. Mm. And I don't do that. Sorry, I have morals and scruples. You know, and there was that. My own boss did it. You know, when all the problems really started blowing out of proportion, he came over to my aunt's house, met me there one night, and came on to me on the sofa. I mean, and I've got evidence of all this. It wrote me love letters. This was a 65-year-old married man with adult children. I mean, ridiculous. And uh, at first, I mean, when I was before I was even a Mason, and I was still just going up to the lodge and talking to them, uh, they uh, one of the last questions they asked me was, "Is there anything you can think of that might cause you problems in this order?" And I said, "Well, sure. What about this?" Oh no, no. Human rights are our foremost purpose, and blah, that whole spiel. Mm. And so it was like, "Okay, great." And then it wasn't a problem forever until I got that position on the Supreme Council, and suddenly. There were all sorts of lewd comments being, I would come into the office at 10, was my starting hour, and uh, there were a few other employees who would get there at 8, and there would already have been so many lewd things said about me that would get back to me, you know, I just had to learn to ignore it. But then, it kept getting bigger and bigger and nastier and nastier, and I think a lot of it, like I said earlier, had to do with, I wasn't willing to go upstairs and do the hanky-panky with some of these guys, and uh, I wasn't willing to play that game. I wasn't willing to, you know, uh, just, I, it was really bizarre, and um, they decided they needed to get rid of me, and they put someone else in who looks like he could be my twin, and who does do that stuff, and what's sad is, I don't even think he's gay. I believe him to be straight, wow. but he is convinced that the only way he's going to get anywhere in Dallas society is by submitting to this, and I think it's very sad. And do you think it could be the case, James, that this is this is policy? I don't mean necessarily in your isolated incident incidents, but it's policy to treat people almost like they're chattel um, and it, for, to be used and abused in the higher echelons as you work your way down. Or could it be that there just are some bad people who have made their way to the top and that the, the whole order isn't rotten to the core? What's, what's your take on the broader spectrum of Freemasonry? Is it something 
that should be brought down from the outside, as you mentioned, in? Or can it be healed? It could possibly be healed if it were brought down from the outside in. If there were more of a public or governmental outcry for transparency, Freedom of Information Act, whatever, it will really right a lot of wrongs. It will drag all of this stuff done in the dark into the light, as they say, and it will put a stop to it, I believe. Because, as I'm sure you know, John, most people who have evil intentions are the ones who do make it to the top Mm -hmm. because they're willing to do things to others that you or I or anyone else with a conscience can't. Absolutely. We had a very interesting discussion on this show with a guy called Thomas Sheridan, a guy from Ireland, who has written extensively about the anatomy of a psychopath. And the type of people that you're describing right there are absolute dyed-in-the-wool psychopaths, people who don't have empathy. They lack that, I suppose... And sociopaths, yes. Yeah, there's, there's no humanity there. And unfortunately, when it comes to quite a lot of things in society, be it politics or big business or industry or finance, it is these people who have a ruthless, non-empathetic streak who make it to the top. And it sounds like we're looking at the same thing within Freemasonry. So to follow on from that, James, do you think that a lot of the ideas of Freemasonry at a Blue Lodge level are worthy and that once the, once I suppose the deeper, darker, more occult ritualistic sides of Freemasonry are stripped back, there could be something left there that is good for people and good for humanity and good for members and non-members alike once it was done in a transparent way. Yes, I think the simplest answer to that conundrum is leave the Blue Lodges alone for the most part because they really haven't done much wrong. Some have, because again, so some of them are very, very dominated by Scottish Rite characters that sit off to the sides and tell the people in charge in the chairs and like the worshipful master and so on, you know, what to do, what to say, what you're going to talk about, blah, blah, blah. And these guys, you know, they say jump, they say how high. Mm. So I think really the solution to all this is the Scottish Rite has to go. It has to. And how can something so seemingly powerful and all-encompassing be infiltrated from the outside in when they seem to be so deliberately hidden? Um, from the outside in, I, it's, it's more from the inside out because that's where the corruption starts. And that's when they, you know, set up, they, they have a program called Sentinel that they had privately developed. It's a piece of software mm-hmm. that keeps track of every mason on the planet and what they do for a living. So if they have a problem anywhere on the planet... All they have to do is pull up Sentinel and figure out who is the judge there, who are the police there, da-da-da-da-da, and, you know, then they make some phone calls and they say, brother, now this is for the good of the fraternity, and, you know, these guys do what they say. That's very interesting because it quite often baffles me and baffles a lot of people when... When, when, when we talk about corruption, and quite often political corruption, but p- corruption in general, and how it seems to be endemic in our society, in Western society, and how there's almost a tolerance or a blind eye turned to it time and time again, and how the people at the top who do the worst things seem to go unpunished when it's the little man or the little woman who is penalised. For example, somebody who can borrow $2 billion 
and can fritter it away and lose all that money can go seemingly untouched. But somebody who doesn't have any kind of connections at all can borrow $100 and if they don't pay it back, there's all hell to pay and they can possibly see the inside of a jail cell. I've always just wondered how that can be. Well, see, because of those faltering numbers and membership I mentioned, that you may see a day very soon where that happens. There's currently a lawsuit that's been filed a couple months ago in New York at the United Nations and it's there's names named and transcripts of phone conversations and every, it, there it, it involves uh, Freemasonry it involves the Vatican and it involves the Italian banks and police and hundreds of billions with a B of dollars have gone missing at the hands of some very high level Freemasons and Vatican officials or what you would refer to as Jesuits. Mm-hmm. The Jesuits are one thing I wanted to talk about as well. What are the links between the Jesuits and Freemasonry? That crossover meeting I mentioned called the Knights of Malta. Okay, so it's, it's the same thing as Vatican, essentially. Yes. Okay, and another thing is the royal family. Uh, we did touch on them before, but how, how much knowledge do people really have of the royal family? We know there are links between Vatican. We know there are links then by extension um, through free- Freemasonry with the political structure of the US and beyond. But Freemasonry being, I suppose, an exclusively male organization, we're looking at the Queen of England there and an absolute tolerance for females at the head of it. And there doesn't seem to be any problem there. How do the two marry? Um, Okay, I guess that's a two-part answer. Um, One, with this bloodline business, they believe that if you get a dose of the good stuff, that it comes through the mitochondrial DNA. In other words, your mother, her mother, it, it runs through the maternal side of the family. Okay. And th- that is actually scientifically fact. So, um, yeah, so there's that component. Plus, uh, it used to be that the Duke of Kent was the Grand Master of Oogly, United Grand Lodge of England, the, the supreme... Grand Lodge of the Earth that all the other Grand Lodges answer to, that but say they don't, but do. And uh, now it's Queen Elizabeth II that is, that, what do they call her, like the, the Grand Matroness or something of Freemasonry at Oogly and, or, or something. So in other words, she's the only female member of proper Blue Lodge male Freemasonry where they don't admit women because they're sexist just like they're racist mm-hmm. and uh so there's always a senior member of the house of windsor that is some sort of presiding figurehead over the united grand lodge of england and they're nothing but gangsters and tiaras and as far as the religious aspects are concerned this is exactly why princess diana was murdered because they could not cope with the fact that the future king of England might have a Muslim, you know, half-brother and a Muslim stepfather. They, they just cannot cope with these things. They do not like change. They do not like people who are different than them. And this is the nature of the beast. What are the, I suppose, the signs that we should look out for going into 2013 and beyond, James? Because you've come out with your book and it's caused huge shockwaves throughout Freemasonry and beyond and it has forced people to look at Freemasonry in a totally different way so what would your hopes be for the future or what can we expect 
Um, we, we'll talk about your own personal situation in a second, but in a broader sense for Freemasonry, has it opened the floodgates in the way that you hoped? Or do you think um, that, that maybe it's still a trickling and that people need to open their own minds to what's going on a little bit more? How do you see the future? Well, it's been a trickling kind of. It's been gaining momentum at an ever-increasing rate, which is uh, I'm grateful for. But it was definitely a trickle in the beginning because of the grip they have on the mainstream media. Yeah. Five mainstream media outlets came out the week the book was published uh, a year ago this month to interview me. I guess they felt, you know, ooh, what a cool story. One of our local kids here in Dallas wrote a book. Let's go see what this is about. And they all ran or wrote their stories, and then mysteriously, all five stations threw them in the garbage. And I happen to have a friend who's an on-camera reporter for one of the well, the most major news station in Dallas. And I asked her, "What is going on?" And she said, "Yeah, it was. It was. We were told to scrap it, and uh, she herself was put on administrative leave for the first time in her career." Wow. Just just for having interviewed me. So it's been very difficult to get the information out. That's where the alternative media has really been a gift from God. And, uh, you know, that's what I put my faith in now is these movements that, you know, the human condition is a funny thing. I have faith is, as far as looking into 2013 and beyond that as bad as things are in the world right now, I think it's going to get better because the human condition has a really uncanny way of crafting really great solutions to really bad problems. Case in point, Anonymous, Occupy, you know, all these groups that have sprung up, you know, Hackers Unite, <laughs> let's bring them down. That They obviously aren't going to go willingly. They're self-preserving organisms just like all of us. So, you know, we're going to have to take them down. So what for you on a personal level, James, you've a new book coming out, but in terms of your own life and quality of life, what can you expect or what do you hope for in the next while? Because it can't be fun having everything permanently packed and ready to move at any stage. No, it's not. And, um, I mean, unfortunately, because of what I've chosen to do, I'll kind of always have to live a life of looking over my shoulder and, you know, whenever I go somewhere, I tend to take someone with me and, you know, I just, I take all these little precautions like that. I don't answer phone numbers. I don't recognize uh, if any little threat or anything comes through, it immediately goes to the FBI. They have a whole dossier of, you know, my case and, and all this stuff that's gone on. Um, it's just really me having to be vigilant and I mean, I think there will come a time when, you know, I'll be able to settle down more and, and have a little bit more peace of mind. Of course, that's going to rely heavily on them being brought to the justice they deserve and a lot of this transparency I keep mentioning, you know, come to pass. However, um, a lot of the problem right now is having to be on the run and, and in the hide and, and all this I mean, I'm I'm hard up. I'm just about flat broke. I'm, you know, this this has cost me everything. To anyone who thinks that uh, this is all very glitzy, you know, work for me, and that I'm just raking it in, and, and no, I'm not. Mm -hmm. uh, I I have yet to see royalties from 
the book because what people don't realize about being an author is there's this long grace period before you see anything and uh you know it's it's just a big mess and i'm i've had very, i've been very fortunate i've got wonderful friends who care a lot about me and um but yeah i'm i'm about a stone's throw away from destitute so any donations i sincerely appreciate which uh there's a link to on my website which is facebook.com forward slash occupy freemasonry one word and interestingly um one month after that website was created with the assistance of my friend Vinny Eastwood yep uh the the masons went and created a cointelpro site called with occupy space freemasonry to try and detract people from mine onto theirs so but yeah mine is forward slash occupy freemasonry one word and on there there's a link to donate and lord knows i need it and of course if people want to check out your book freemasonry's cult abuses human and gay rights controversy they can do so it's available on amazon where else can people get it it is guaranteed in stock in Barnes and Noble, and they can also visit my publisher's website at uh, newfalcon.com, and I am under the category of politics. And there's a ton of fabulous books on there and as well. Before we let you go, James, would you have any concern with regard to your personal safety that the authorities are those who, um, I suppose, are protecting you would in any way be infiltrated? Oh, that's already happened. Um, the last six death threats that came in, I called the FBI agent in Dallas in charge of my case, told him about it, obviously, like I always do. And he said, well, since you're in the place where you are, I'm not going to name the name of the town. Mm -hmm. uh, he said, you know, go there and file a report since technically it came through on a line in their jurisdiction and blah, blah, blah. And so I went and did that, and the very first thing that the sheriff said to me, he goes, well, you know I'm a 32nd degree Mason. And I said, well, then I'm going to need to sit in this room for this deposition. And I phoned him. Oh, yeah, I just gave it back to your special agent in Dallas, you know, with this attitude in his voice. So, I mean, it's been this back and forth of police – throwing it away and the FBI has actually taken a legitimate and altruistic interest in it but it hasn't really gotten anywhere because as the special agent in charge of my case told me he he said I've reached the extent of my ability to, to investigate this the, the suspect list is too long it's 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 a mess and I mean I've I've pretty much it's cost me everything just to do this I've lost my house uh, I had to flee Dallas where they're all headquartered. You know, um, I've been on this constant run and it's, it's a very dear price I've paid. So, uh, but I believe in what I'm doing. I believe I have a role to fulfill and I believe all this information has to be brought out. I was once, I believe under the, uh, full influence of their mind control. I let them treat me in, terrible ways and this is my vindication tell us once again when can we expect the second book um it's going uh, i'm really going to vet them worse than in the first one <laughs> so uh that relies on many 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 pages of additional evidence in my possession i'm still trying to get that 
compiled and merged in with Microsoft Word and, and put the finishing touches on it. And it takes about a year for a book to go from manuscript to store shelves. So it's probably going to be around Christmas. So it's, it's a ways off, but it's, it is nearing completion. James, all the best for the future, as I say. Thank you very much for joining me here on Alchemy Radio. It's been fascinating speaking to you and uh, a great pleasure, I must say. Thank you, John. Likewise. Alchemy Radio.
Monday. Monday.